I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the The Flight Flight Safety Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, John. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And I'll tell you, man, it has been a busy week for me this week. Um, I've been coming and going a variety of different places. I've picked up a number of new accidents. I also gave a webinar this week trying to demonstrate to everyone that would listen to me how we can curb this accident rate so that I can stay home. I'm getting tired of traveling. And in fact, my friend, I think I've traveled more during our COVID period than before, and I definitely am traveling more now than when I was with the NTSB. So how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. But I was going to mention to you, Greg, I wonder how much of this accelerated accident rate that we're seeing in this short period of time, last month or two, is because pilots are rusty. They've been not flying because of the pandemic, and they just think they're going to go back out and jump in the airplane and pick up where they left off. And we know that that's not the case oftentimes. And, uh, I wonder if that's not a factor in what we're seeing. I think you have a good point there. And in fact, I talked about it this week because there is truly a difference between proficiency and currency. There are a lot of people out there with a pilot certificate in their pocket thinking, well, I'm current. That's okay. But you're not proficient. And there is a big difference. And I see it all the time. A number of the accidents that I'm currently working are just that. Yes, legally, they comply with the regulations. They get in that airplane, they find themselves in a position they don't want to be in. They don't have the requisite proficiency or even skills, abilities, and knowledge to remedy those situations. And unfortunately, it's causing me to have to go to work. So I'm hoping that uh, maybe that message gets out. And of course, I know that you and I have talked about to the audience, talking about doing a show about just this fact. We talk about it at the end of the shows and asking people to do good pre-flights and being prepared and things like that. But we're going to start using some accidents, especially ones that I'm now finished with, where we can bring these points up. Because I really think that if we don't get a handle on this, this is going to be, right now, I'm willing to call it a isolated event, even though we have multiple pilots, but it could become a very systemic issue if we don't do something about it. Yes, people just uh, don't think sometimes. Well, before we get started with this show, which I believe is going to be very, very interesting, I would like to remind our listeners that this show is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as 
of Emco Insurance. And to all of our flyers out there, if you need insurance, if you're renewing, buying a new airplane, or if you need CFI insurance, whatever your insurance needs in general aviation, give a VEMCO a call, 888-879-0389. They're good people to work with. You can also find them on the web at avemco.com, and they won't insure anybody because they insure Greg. <laughs> you you just love to stick that knife in and turn it a little bit, you know? Yeah, well. I'm only getting even for your Oval and Wilbur Wright jokes that you throw on me all the time. But you know what, John? Sometimes the facts hurt. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm just a fact kind of guy. I, I don't know what else to say, my friend. Well, fortunately, both of those gentlemen were deceased before I took my first lessons in 1958. <laughs> you know, I was actually going to look up to see if I... If my first lesson was before the FAA was born, because they were born in 58, but I just don't remember when. Yeah, you fell under those old rules of the Department of Commerce and the CAB and whatever else entity had some sort of finger in the aviation business. So, Yes, I did. And it was a lot easier back then. Absolutely. Well, as you said in the opening... I agree with you that we are going to have an interesting show. Again, we try to use this show not only to talk about the tragedies and the accidents and dissecting and getting the lessons learned so that we can give back to our audience with, you know, tips and tricks and lessons and, and just things that we see as issues that are detrimental or curtail or, in fact, denigrate and degrade aviation safety. But we also like to try and promote the positive. And we have two very experienced, extraordinary women with us today that, John, I will let you introduce our two fine guests. Well, we have two fine guests, as you said, both of which I go back a ways with, one way back with. <laughs> what? No, no, no. You cannot. You cannot. Take her down with you to try and show how old you are or how young you are. Don't do that to her. Well, well, she's a lot younger than I am. I will give her that. And, and, there you go. and a lot smarter. All right. So we have a young lady that's the president of Tailwind Communications, as well as a founding member of Women in Aviation. And also, she was a founding member of the Coalition for aviation education and served with me on that group back in the 94, 95 area of time. So Cassandra Bosco, welcome to the show. Thanks, John and Greg. Wonderful to be here. And I too was born well after the Wright brothers passed. So there you go. Great. Cassandra. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that. Our second guest today is Dr. Becky Luti from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. She's an associate professor, and we just found out moments ago that I was pinned by the Becky <laughs> at least 20 years ago. So in you my eyes, indeed. in my eyes, we're still going steady. <laughs> 
we'll go with that. <laughs> now, well, I, just least- want to rem- I just want to remind you all, this is a family-friendly show, John. <laughs> so we're not going to define what pinned mean other than the fact that you have a very amicable and, and very pleasant relationship. And I'll leave it at that. Well, we're going to post a picture of Becky pinning me at the podium. Right. Okay. At the podium. So. Yeah. So, John, we were we were grateful to have John as a distinguished guest lecturer at the University of Nebraska Omaha Aviation Lecture Series. Gosh, good twenty years ago, John, at least. And I, I came across a picture of me putting a University of Nebraska pin on him at the end. So, I'm not going to say we're going steady still because my husband might take to that. But you will always be an honorary flying maverick. How about that? All right. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, uh, there's so many jokes there. Oh, my gosh, Becky. You know, he is a flying maverick in more ways than one, trust me. <laughs> then the title stinks. Well, we're happy to have you both on the show. I know we got a lot to get to, but in our past shows, John and I, especially when we were down at one of your rival schools, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, which happens to be my alma mater. We had the good fortune, of course, to interview some young ladies who were very dynamic, very passionate about not only their education, but uh, their their future plans in aviation. And I think one of the the first things that I want to start off with is the fact that as an educator, and, and both of you are educators in, in different ways because, Cassandra, you, with women in aviation, they were providing a level of education in a different sense to try and get more women into aviation and aerospace positions. And, of course, as an educator at a university and an alma mater alumni of Embry-Riddle, a formal aviation institution, where do you see aviation programs going? We know we hit a lull for a while there. It caused a lot of aviation universities to rethink, do I stay in aviation? I know that Embry Riddle had that same issue. And they diversified, went a variety of different directions. But then, of course, aviation started to come roaring back. Do you see aviation as something that's going to be continually growing? Are we going to see another lull? And then where does aerospace factor into that dynamic? Yeah, for me, for sure, at the university, we're really optimistic about the continued growth. So we're actually seeing year-on-year increases in enrollment, even through COVID. And I also sit on the board for the University Aviation Association that represents university programs um, really internationally. And, you know, we're still seeing some good growth and a lot of opportunity for continued enrollment. In fact, you know, some of the conversations we're having is capacity issues. So we're really focused on making sure that we've got uh, the capacity that we need, for example, in flight training and other areas to make sure that we can continue that growth. So, and to your point about aerospace, we're seeing that in all fields across multiple categories within aviation. So a lot of interest is still there. We're building those basic skill sets that will send students to be successful in any of the career fields. And we are diversifying, as you said. I mean, I started at the university, I dare to say how long ago, but if you would have told me when I started that we would have a degree in UAS, who would have thought, you know, that was on the horizon? And we do, and it's growing, and our students, you know, we just graduated our first students, and they're getting good jobs that are paying them some good money. 
So we're seeing some interesting changes that uh, we're really optimistic. And I just, this is Cassandra, I just want to add that the universities and industry have been working hand in glove for many years now, knowing industry's workforce needs. They've been working directly with the collegiate aviation programs to make sure the schools are putting forward programs and students with the skills they're going to need. So there are two groups, University Aviation Association, as well as the Aviation Accreditation Bureau International. They do annually an industry educator forum where industry and educators get together and talk about, here's our needs. And the schools go, okay, here's what we're going to do to train students to be ready for you. And along those lines, ladies, I'm mentoring several students. Uh, graduated high school, two of them are at Embry-Riddle. One's at an independent university here in Colorado. One of the things that I get asked is, is there scholarship money? Is there tuition assistance? Because as we all know, aviation is definitely an expensive venture, especially if you don't go to a state-run school, you're at a private university like an Embry-Riddle. And so, of course, a lot of these folks, especially those that are underserved, the underprivileged kids, some of the minorities and that kind of thing are always concerned with the cost. Are there lots of programs out there that the cost of getting that education shouldn't be a prohibitive factor in their decision making? As a founding board member of Women in Aviation, we started many moons ago with two $500 scholarships that the board members pitched in to make happen. And now Women in Aviation gives out hundreds of thousands of dollars in scholarships every year. Their next cycle for scholarships begins in July. So if there are any students listening, actually any aviation professionals listening, they're for students as well as advanced type ratings and all segments of the industry. There's literally hundreds of thousands of dollars out there and available, and Becky may want to address this, but UAA also has a very rich scholarship program, a very diverse program. Yeah, and I would add on to that, you know, as Cassandra stated, and as you were mentioning, cost is without a doubt a barrier, uh, in particular for the high-cost areas like flight training. And I think there's a couple of different things we can do to address that, that we could do a better job of. Yes, there's a fair amount of scholarship money out there, but we don't do a great job as an industry of making people aware of that scholarship availability. How do you find it? Where do you go to apply? And just getting a little bit better at getting that information out there. So I think we can do a better job of that. The other area, as a university person, I'll tell you, you know, I talk to people in financial aid, and one of the things you hear is that the amount of available financial aid for students hasn't even kept up with the basic cost of the increases in tuition over the years, let alone adding on the cost for things like flight training or maybe aviation maintenance, et cetera. So we've got to really expand student access to things like grants and affordable student loans to help them get them over that hurdle uh, and get access to those funds. So I think in those two areas, you know, there's still a fair amount that we can do to help address that barrier. Along that that line, do you see the new norm that we've created to an extent with COVID, online learning? Are we going to see students flocking back to the university property, or 
is there going to be a shift to more online learning? I know with aviation, you can't learn to fly sitting in your living room. I mean, that's kind of obvious, but some of these other degree programs and, of course, career pathways, can they and will they be utilized to try and draw in more underserved underprivileged and, and minority groups because it gives a greater gives them greater access. I think that's a great point, Greg. And I think that that's true. We've learned a lot in COVID. We've learned that we are innovative in this industry. We've learned that we can quickly pivot and make adjustments to do what we need to do, particularly in the area of, of education delivery and online learning. So I do think that from that learning experience, we can figure out things like how do we do outreach to more youth? via an online environment so we can get to more uh, young people with the messages about aviation and and also, of course, the education side of it, too. So I think I think in some ways, the students that were on campus before, I have a son that's in our program right now, in fact, in flight training. And then, you know, for the last year, there's been very little on-campus time. And those students want that. They want to get back to really having that college experience. And they're anxious to do so. I'm glad to say we'll, we'll go in that direction for next year. But it's really taught us that we can do things a little bit differently. And, and I'm probably a good example of that. I actually work for the University of Nebraska, but I live in the Houston, Texas area. And I've worked this way for them for close to 20 years. So I actually commute back and forth. So I've been in the online hybrid course delivery world for a long time. So, yes, I think there's a lot of possibility to learn from this past year's experience. John, I know that something that's near and dear to your heart that we explored when we were at Embry-Riddle was trying to get more women and minorities into the aviation maintenance side of the house. Of course, the sexy glory side is being a pilot, sitting in the cockpit, wearing a cool uniform and, you know, greeting passengers and making, a, you know, an 800,000-pound machine fly. But we need people that are under the wing to keep those aircraft in flying condition and, and of course, airworthy to allow me to obtain all of that fame and glory and ego stroke as a pilot. And I say that lovingly (laughs) to all of the pilots out there, trust me. But the fact is, is that as you and I have talked about, John, without somebody that I trust to fix my airplane and keep it flying, if you don't fix it, I don't fly. Exactly right. That's true. And and we've had the problem of of uh, low enrollment rates for mechanics coming in. In fact, when the pandemic started to cripple the airline industry, one of the things that I noticed right off the bat was that there was a, a big push by the corporations, Delta American. They're all looking to get their senior pilots out the door, retire them out early. But that same kind of effort was muted for the maintenance department. And I was saying, not knowing what was going on, but I was saying when I saw that, they must see something that we don't see, that they're not pushing their maintenance people out. They're trying to hold on to their maintenance people. The number of departures from the maintenance department for the major airlines was very, very, very low. And I think that I believe what it really is is the fact that they knew when they came back that they were going to need that manpower to get these airplanes back in the air that they've put out in, out in the farm, so to speak. It takes a lot of effort to bring an airplane back after it's been sitting around for an extended period and what turned out to be about a year. 
So it's going to be uh, interesting to see what happens. They're t- hiring. American is hiring. Delta's hiring for maintenance personnel. So it's, it's a different dynamic in that area. In the maintenance programs at University of Nebraska, what, what are you seeing for your enrollments? Are they still up? So we actually don't have maintenance as part of our curriculum. We do flight, admin, and UAS. But overall, I think, you know, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, there's a, there's a real need for maintenance technicians overall in the industry. I'm actually working on a project right now that involves a group hire of women maintenance technicians to help address, you know, also the shortage specifically of women in maintenance, which I heard Greg mention. You know, that particular area is the greatest gender gap of all the occupations in aviation. So maintenance technicians, only 2.5% of maintenance technicians are women. So not only do we have a workforce development issue specifically for technicians in general, but certainly targeting women as well. So I'm really excited about this project down in Miami, which I'm doing with um, AAR Corporation, who has done, has kind of really leaned into this. And they did a group hire of women maintenance technicians. Um, partly funded with some grant work from Lumina and Corporation for Skilled Workforce. And then I come in as, as the researcher to, to see what's working. And the goal is, you know, you bring in a, a group of women together and you've got a greater community of support. And we can learn a little bit more about how that impacts the work environment and whether this is going to help improve recruitment and retention of women in aviation. And what we're seeing, you know, even early on are really positive signs that they're actually saying that their applications for women technicians are up and they feel it's partly the word of mouth and a little bit of press they've gotten from this group hire that women are contacting the organization saying, hey, this is a place I want to be and they're getting their applications in. So so we're kind of excited about this this uh, launch of this group hire and to see if that is one of many mechanisms that we need to engage in order to increase really technicians overall. There's also a couple of associations working on the issue as well. I know you probably work with ATEC, but there's also the Association of Women in Aviation Maintenance. And the um, Department of Transportation has two grant programs right now for workforce development. One is for pilots, but another is for aviation maintenance because they realize how critical that is to the aviation infrastructure. Those are very cool jobs, and you don't necessarily need a four-year degree. So that also helps with the cost of becoming a skilled worker in the aviation industry. The Aerospace Maintenance Skills Competition, we have been promoting women to come in and compete in those events. And and uh, last year, I think we were up to over 30 women, and we, we try our best to, to get them in. We've got a team from Canada that came down. So we try our best to encourage the women to, to come in and test the water, so to speak, on working in maintenance. But it also, the, the cost of training is far different than pilot training. And I think that helps attract people from underserved communities. And actually, here's a number from the past, and I don't know if it still holds through or not, but I remember when I served on the ARAC committee, Aviation Rulemaking Advisory Committee, 25 years ago, before I went to the NTSB, and we were told by the FAA that approximately 75% of the mechanics come through the public school system. Community colleges, there's a number of aviation high schools that have maintenance programs. And if that's true, that means that the, the 
even if it's it's gone down, I don't know what the number is today, but even if it's gone down, it means that there is an avenue for people to come in and go through a maintenance training program for minimal outlay. I know community college in, in Seattle has an AMP program. I was recently in Salt Lake City, and they have a community college aircraft maintenance program. So they're out there. So people have to just, if they don't have the money, do a little searching, and they may be able to find one that's not too far from where they are. The state of Connecticut has one, has one in Hartford as well. So they're out there. John, one of the things I'm very committed to is finding a way to get the word out about these exciting careers in aviation to students in schools. My philosophy is there's rarely ever been a school counselor that said to a student, how about a career in aviation? We have scholarships. We have abundant jobs available. They're exciting jobs. I think we need to do a better job of getting word out to the people who are offering opportunities to students. I agree with you 100%. I don't believe that the school system, the secondary school, the the, uh, high school system, is promoting this employment area. And you bring up a good point, Cassandra, that, and that is what, I mean, we've been talking about pilots, we've been talking about maintenance techs, but there are so many other jobs in aviation. Because when you think of a maintenance tech, you think of getting your fingernails dirty. And when you think of a pilot, you think of all of the things it takes to become a pilot. But there are so many other rewarding careers in aviation, like you said, some don't require a college degree. And John and I talked about this on a previous show where the trade schools are coming back into vogue because you do have that cadre of, of students that graduate high school, but college just isn't for them. They want to be in the workforce. They want to be in a technically skilled job. And the best place for them to go is, of course, a, a low tech type school. But there are so many other types of careers. And I know that, uh, unfortunately, Kim Day, who is the airport's director out of Denver International Airport, has announced that she's retiring. But when you think of the position that she holds, and there are many more women getting into these management-type positions, all the way up to the CEO of very large aviation organizations, how much emphasis is placed on, on promoting those types of jobs as well? Becky, you want to talk about what the Women in Aviation Advisory Board is doing? Yeah, as a member, I'm a member of the uh, FAA Women in Aviation Advisory Board. And Greg, to your point, we're seeing a need to increase the numbers of women in aviation, you know, throughout the industry. And that's really why the board was created. That's our mission. And it's not just, you know, maintenance and, and pilots, although those are some of the areas with the greatest gender gap. It's across the board. And it's getting that word out through outreach and other programs that that there's multiple exciting, adventurous, great careers out there for women to consider. And how do we best get that information out there? How do we identify, for example, who the influencers are for young women? And how do we make sure that they have the information that they need and the right information, the correct information? And, And also not just that, but how do we, you know, if we've done outreach, And we get a young woman excited about aviation or young people in general, you know, excited about aviation. How do we sustain the momentum? 
how do we put the steps in front of them that this is the pathway you start here and then you can, you know, get your information here, here, and here to, to give them a really good guiding pathway of the pipeline to get them from point A to point B. So those are the, some of the things we're working on in the uh, Women in Aviation Board. There's also a Youth in Aviation Task Force Board happening right now as well, and they're looking at some of those same issues. You're talking about leadership also, so that's why organizations like Women in Aviation and NBAA and others have very robust mentoring programs. So not only how do you get from point A to point B starting out in your career, but later in your career too, mid-career, where do you go for advice at that point? And the wonderful thing about the aviation industry, and I'm sure aerospace industry too, is we all love to talk about aviation. We all love to talk about aviation jobs and what a wonderful industry it is. And we are all so willing to provide mentorship to people. And that's, I think, a key. And one of the things that, as you've been talking, I always think about trying to use those influencers and, and what defines an influencer. Well, you know, if you ask, you know, 20 people, they're going to give you 20 different, 20 different answers. But if you look at uh, an accomplished female like Angelina Jolie, I mean, she's a famous actress. She's raised a very large family. She's in the news all the time. But she's a helicopter pilot, an accomplished helicopter pilot and uh, mm-hmm. fixed wing pilot. And trying to reach out to those type of people to relate their story. And maybe we need to create a catalog of not only TV and movie people, but athletes of, of, a, of a variety of different ages in all the sports across the board and get them to tell their story and use those stories as the hook to a very wide demographic and say, look, you know, she's 20 years old. She's an accomplished swimmer. She's an accomplished athlete. She's whatever. But she's also an accomplished pilot or accomplished mechanic or, you know, whatever. And try to utilize those people that influence those those generations because there are a lot of them out there. Unfortunately, John and I have had to investigate some of the sports figures that, you know, their ego gets a little ahead of them and they end up doing something stupid in an aircraft and put themselves in a position of jeopardy. And there are enough people out there that are positive influencers and role models that maybe we exploit that a little more since they seem to be able to drive a variety of different messages across the board in social media. For instance, Young Eagles does that really well through the Experimental Aircraft Association. They've had celebrity-level people like Harrison Ford and others talk to kids about their first flight. But I think what Becky also was mentioning is once they've had that first flight, where do they go from there? Do they just go home and tell people how cool it was that they had their first flight? How do we get them to sustain that and what are their next steps and how do we make that available to them? So yeah, I love the idea of getting high level people, but I don't know if you guys are aware of Barrington Irving. Yes, He's one of my favorite stories. He's talking to students in low income areas and underserved areas and his story about how he was a young kid in a bodega grocery store in Florida and a pilot in a 
in his captain's uniform walks up to him and says, Hey, are you interested in flying? And he's like, no, I'm not very good at school and I don't have money and I don't know what to do. And the guy took him under his wing. And now Barrington is paying that back over and over again with his flying classroom. So and those are the kind of he's he's inspirational when he speaks to kids. Absolutely. And there's a program out here that was started by a triple seven captain for United. And Willie Daniels has done a great job in reaching out to those underserved communities to expose young people into aviation, various aspects. And he has a number of us come in and we give a two hour presentation to these students on a Saturday Uh over a period of time, exposing them to the different aspects of what they have an opportunity to experience and explore as a career path that's not beyond their realm. And, and yes. I think these are great programs that we really need to continue like Shades of Blue and others. You have people like Charlie Bolden and the Bob Hoover Institute through Shondi Tucker. And these people are putting together programs to inspire kids to go into aviation. Yeah, and so much of that, too, you know, you just gave some great examples of outreach to youth, and I absolutely love that because we all share that same passion for aviation. And one thing I've learned through doing research in that area of outreach is if there's one thing I now know for sure, it's with outreach, it's not just about awareness of what's out there, but it's also about empowerment. You know, how do you empower young people particularly underrepresented groups, perhaps, that this is not only something that's out there, but it's something that you absolutely can do it. And so I think, you know, when you talk about people like Barrington and and other influencers, the see it, be it part of it is so important. So I, you know, I'm always excited to hear about people who are getting back and doing outreach and getting in front of kids. And they not only need to hear about what's available to them, but they need to see people that look like them doing the jobs that they're going to want to do. And that will also help empower them to say, yeah, I can do that. Well, and and Women in Aviation has the Girls in Aviation Day program, which had to go virtual last year because of the pandemic. So they created an app that's available 24-7, 365. Embry-Riddle worked with Women in Aviation to put together a massive online course that's available for free. It's an introduction to aviation. Yeah, no, these are, they're, they're all great programs. And And again, I think, how do we get that information out so people are aware of it? Because when I talk to people, they go, I didn't know that existed. Now, of course, with the Internet, uh, it makes it a convenient tool once they know that something is in existence and they can go hunt it down. But I agree, we have to do a better better way, uh, find a better way of advertising all of these kinds of programs and opportunities that that exist and shifting gears a little bit do you see that opportunity and and that kind of emphasis going more towards the aerospace side now given the fact that we have privatization and commercial aerospace and things like that with spacex and blue origin and all of these new companies coming into the mix launching people into space 
Yeah, without a doubt, that's going to be a major player for workforce development, for skill development, and, you know, feeding that pipeline in aviation. I mean, when you just look at the number of, of private commercial launches that we've had, we've had close to 40 or a little over 40 just, you know, in the last year. So, you know, it's just incredible how this has just exploded. And that just means jobs for everybody, you know, all throughout that pipeline, including inspectors on the FAA side that, you know, have to prep it to everybody that, that preps and is, is hands-on with the launch and all the admin support that goes with it. So absolutely, I think you're, you're going to see that as, as a workforce pipeline for the future. And I agree with that, especially you know, with the Mars, uh, the, the helicopter on Mars and the, all the different companies doing space right now, they're getting a lot of free publicity with these very cool and exciting programs. And I'm certain that kids are, it's making kids become interested in that again. Well, thank you for that segue, because I appreciate you talking about the helicopter on Mars, because that <laughs> brings me to drones. And what is the interest in, of course, women and, and other minorities into the drones? I mean, they, too, are going to grow by leaps and bounds. They already have. They're going to continue with commercial manned and unmanned uh, you know, vehicles and that kind of stuff. Where's that interest? Is it is it kind of flat? Is it gaining traction? And and how is it being promoted in uh, in the education programs? It's definitely taking hold. AOPA even has a, a drone membership, but there's different categories of it. There's you know the hobbyist. There's using it in all these different industries, and then there's the aviation and aerospace version, the large commercial use of it and military use, and. I think the schools are addressing the need for that. I don't know if UNO has a program, Becky, but I we know do. There, are, yeah, there are schools doing that work because it's an exciting field for the future. And there is a group called Women in Drones. So um, they are. There's, a, there's a group of women in everything. Come on. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> of course there is. Of course there is. <laughs> there was recently a, a big drone adventure here in Boston, a worldwide adventure. And I was amazed to, to find how the width and breadth of it. And one of the groups that caught my attention, I was totally unaware of it, is Grandmothers to Drone. They actually have a group of Grandmothers to Drone. It's, it's just... <laughs> Fantastic. It is reaching out <laughs> everywhere. It's like spiderwebbed. And it's just going out everywhere. And, it's, there's, you know, it's still expensive when you get away from the toys. It's, you need, a, you know, more than $1,000 to, to get entry. Yeah. But there's also a friend of mine that was just mentoring a young lady who wants to go into the Air Force. And they're struggling with the recruiter. They're struggling on where to get her. She's educated. And where they want to steer her and where she wants to go. And now one of the one of the pieces of, of advice that were given to this young lady was that she should get her drone license just to show an interest to the Air Force that she's got an interest in flying and she's gone above and beyond to get the license. And maybe that'll help her get selected into one of these programs that will have a uh, 
a real impact on her future. Right. And the key is getting them involved in the professional arena of, of drones and EV tall. And the schools are also going to be adjusting how they're training students to go into those segments of the industry. For instance, the aviation maintenance people will need more electrical skills. So that's that back and forth between industry and educators. What are the future needs and who's providing them? But it's a very exciting time in our industry. It's a lot going on. I remember the first time I heard that the FAA administrator spoke at the uh, Consumer Electronics Show. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. It's funny you're saying that because I just got an email just flashed up in front of me here about the computer the, the computer electronics show. And guess what the headline is? How drones have delivered. Yes. yes. Well, there you go. <laughs> and it's the latest in drone technology, robotics to the rescue. I mean, here's the first page of, of what they're doing. And it's it's all truly an honor. The age of AI-driven Truly autonomous drones. This is the first page off the consumer electronics page. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think what's especially cool about all this is the Wright brothers only first flew in 1903. And here we are, what, 115, 16 years later, and we're talking about drones. In space. And it's just <laughs> so excited. And even though you and I didn't get to work directly with the Wright brothers, it's still very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm an investigator, and I'm still working on that investigation because I think Greg's not buying it. I think John had something to do with Orville and Wilbur. It's a matter of time before I really find out. So, Keep digging. All right, so yeah. now I got two of you ganging up on me. <laughs> Why not? As it should be, my friend, as it should be. Well, ladies, we really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. I know that our audience will find this uh, not only educational, but maybe it will at least facilitate some thought on their part to reach out to people that they may know, especially young people, and say, hey, I was listening to this podcast I heard these ladies talking about this program, that program. I knew that you expressed interest in some sort of aviation. Why don't you check this out? So I'm hoping that this has a cascading effect in a, in a very good way to try and get that message out that we've been talking about. So, again, I want to thank you both for not only your dedication to aviation in your respective niches, but, again, it's all about us working together in a, in a collective effort to get young people, to get that next generation and that next generation involved. Because 10 years from now, when we have this podcast going and John's going to be 105, <laughs> we're going <laughs> to uh, the hits keep coming. <laughs> yes, they do. You know, it's it'll be an interesting subject because we're going to have you both back on to talk about where we came in that ten years, and it, I think it'll be a real exciting show ten years from now because it's going to have changed so much. So again, we really appreciate you being on the show with us today. Thanks, John and Greg. Thank you so thank much you for so having much. us. This was fun. Yeah, thank you. And for highlighting the conversation. That's great. We really appreciate it. Anytime. And, okay. and oh, by the way, because you've been on the show, one of those penances that you have to pay for being on our show 
is the fact that you have now become official friends of the flight safety detectives. Cool. So, so whenever we need high levels of expertise, we put up the bat signal and we flag <laughs> you down. We find where you are. You cannot hide. You may be able to run, but you cannot hide. And we will have you back on the show. I thought Happily. you would send a drone to our door, Greg. There oh, you go. Uh, that's next. Trust me. <laughs> Thank you so much, gentlemen. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Good. Thank you. All right. Thank bye-bye. You. All right. Bye-bye. bye-bye. I would like to remind all our listeners that this show has been brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance. And if you're out there and you need insurance for your airplane, whether you're renewing or you're buying a new airplane, give Avemco a call, 888-879-0389, and you'll actually get a 5% discount just for saying you listen to the flight safety detectives. You can also reach them on the web at avemco.com, and they're great people to deal with. Absolutely. Well, John, I, I want to thank you for uh, for making that happen and getting you know, Cassandra and Becky on the on the show again. I know the feedback that we get from our listeners at our email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. We appreciate the input. We got some really good positive responses from our shows that we did at Embry-Riddle. And that's why we were able to bring Cassandra and Becky on was to, to try and follow up with that. And yes, we are going to get back to our core discussion of what flight safety detectives is all about. And that is dissecting accidents, getting into the lessons learned, giving back into, uh, into the aviation community with tips and tricks and things that uh, will help us all, whether we fly it, fix it, or manage it, to be safer in aviation. So again, we, we do appreciate it, but we think that this positive, this outreach, this, this education on a variety of different aspects, especially at this time and getting the next generations of, of young people into, into these dynamic industries, aerospace and aviation, I think is critical. And that's our way of giving back. So with all that being said, my friend, I will give you the last words. Well, everybody, the pandemic is on the decline, but it's not gone. So please, in our personal lives, stay safe. Wash your hands. Don't go inside with large crowds. Wear a mask. Let's get this behind us. And if you fly, do a good job of pre-planning. If you haven't flown recently, fly with somebody. We have looking at an increased spike in accidents over the recent past month or so, two months, and we're asking ourselves the question, is this a result of rusty pilots? Pilots who believe that they could just go out and pick up where they were a year ago and start flying. And it's not clear, the picture's not clear if that is a factor in it or not. It's definitely a question on the table. So please, if you haven't flown, fly with somebody who is current. All right, fly with an instructor. Don't take unnecessary risk. All right, and if you go out, make sure you do a good pre-flight. You know, if the airplane's been in maintenance, make sure you really look it over. We're getting ready for one of our podcasts to talk about an accident, a fatal accident that had just that, 
an airplane that was in the maintenance and came out and had a problem in flight, only a few minutes in flight, and crashed and killed the uh, pilot. So we're going to talk about that probably in our next podcast as we're gathering all the pieces together right now. So please pay attention and stay safe in whatever you do. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.